The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, my phone and my, my laptop regularly suggest that I update the software. You have devices like that? Uh, my, my tablet here? So uh, usually the update's relatively minor. It's usually not something as significant as this. So that's a rotary phone from 1919 compared to an iPhone or a, a legal pad compared to a MacBook Pro or a horse and buggy compared to a Ford F-150 with 290 to 400 horsepower. Uh, or we could add the change from communicating by snail mail as opposed to you know, over Zoom on a broadband internet connection. Uh, major change, much, much more significant than just a, a little upgrade to your device. And uh, here's where I'm going with this. Uh, what's the nature of the change from the Holy Spirit's old covenant ministry to the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry? Is it, is it more like updating your iPhone from 14.3 to 14.4 and you don't really know what changed? Or is it more like going from a, a legal pad to a MacBook Pro? Well, how significant is this? I think that the change from the way that the Holy Spirit ministers to God's people under the old covenant to the change under the new covenant is way more significant than just a little software update, but that it's a really big deal. It's a major upgrade, not a minor one. And you might think, well, so how exactly is, is the, how, how do we specify the difference? And my shortest way to do it is to say, under the new covenant, it's way better. It's way better. So let me just show you this. I won't unpack this in, in great detail. So before Jesus died as the penal substitute for his people, look at what he said. This is John 14. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will, so this is in the future, it hasn't happened at this point, he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. And he'll be with you forever. And that's implying that that's not the case in the same sense when he's speaking. This is something greater to look forward to. Even the spirit of truth, that's who he's talking about, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor know him. You know him. Now watch this right, right here. So big. He, right now, is dwelling with you, and he will be in you. Now, however you describe that, the, he's currently with his people, and in the future he will be in them. The in them is, in some sense, greater. It's better. That's how he's talking. Similarly, in John 16, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Do you really believe that? Some of us think, I don't know about that one. Like, I, I think I might take Jesus in the flesh over the Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself said, it's for your good that I'm going away. Here's why. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's another term for the spirit of truth or the helper, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So there's this sense in Jesus' teaching where, yes, the Holy Spirit's already ministering to you in some sense, but it's going to be way better. It's going to be greater. Now, Luke, he wrote the gospel and the book of Acts. We're, we're doing a sermon series on Acts, but just remember, we're volume two of a two-volume set. At the end of the gospel according to Luke, here's what he says. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem, until you're clothed with power from on high. That's how volume one ends. Here's how volume two begins. While staying with them, Acts 1, he ordered them, so Jesus ordered the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for, there's that phrase again, 
to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be future baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And what's going to happen at that moment? You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. So this transition from the Holy Spirit's ministry under the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is a really big deal. The the Spirit continues to minister to God's people. That's continuity. But his ministry is way better. That's discontinuity. And our text, Acts 2, 1 to 13, tells a story. It's the story of the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. So I'd like to preach to you from Acts 2, 1 to 13 on that subject. The beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. And I'd like to approach this passage by asking questions. I've got a list of eight questions to pose. And the first five we can answer pretty quickly just by looking right at our text, sometimes a little before it and a little after it, but right in Acts 2, when did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin and to whom and where and how and with what result? And then the final three questions, we'll zoom out and we'll use the rest of the Bible to, to answer those questions. So let's start with question number one. When, when did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? And the answer is on the day of Pentecost at about 9 a.m. And your first question is 9 a.m., So we didn't read this yet. It's in verse 15. So verse 15 says, the third hour of the day. So that's about 9 a.m. as we keep time. So that's where that came from. But the the Pentecost, that's the first words of our text. So chapter 2, verse 1 begins, when the day of Pentecost arrived. You know what Pentecost means? That word Pentecost, it just means 50th part or 50th day. And it began the festival of weeks, that's what Deuteronomy 16 calls it, or the festival of harvest, that's what Exodus 23 calls it. And this happened 50 days after Passover. So Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they'd stick around for Pentecost 50 days later. And the the symbolism is beautiful. It's a festival of harvest, and on the day of Pentecost, God harvested about 3,000 souls. That's what Acts 2.41 says. Now, one more thing before we go to the the second question. Note that the first words of our passage highlight the concept of fulfillment. This is not transparent in most English translations. So the ESV says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. That word arrived translates a word that means fulfilled. And Luke uses that same word, exact word, in his gospel, in Luke 9.51, when he says, when the day's drew near, translates the same word, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is, this is fulfillment language. So in Acts 2, Luke is signaling that what happens here is fulfilling God's plan. And I think this is significant because it supports the message, the theological message of the book of Acts. I would, I would put this way, Jesus the Messiah continues to fulfill God's plan by expanding the early church in the face of opposition through the Spirit's power. That's question one. Question two, to whom did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? Verse one says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all. Who's the they? Who's the all? Who are these people? Uh, Who's that refer to? And I think it likely refers back to verse one, chapter one, verse 15, uh, which says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the parenthetical note here, the company of persons 
was in all about 120. So this group includes apostles and other believers, men and women. I say men and women because Peter says in Acts 2, 17 and 18 that God has poured out his spirit on both men and women. Question three, where did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? Remember that, that the, the book of Acts begins, chapter 1, verse 4, by saying that while, while Jesus was staying with the apostles, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Acts 1, 4. Acts 1, 12. So Jesus ascended to the Father, and then it says that the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. And then verse 13, they're in an upper room of a home in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure if they're in that same upper room on the day of Pentecost. All I know is chapter 2, verse 1 says they were together in one place. Verse 2 says they're in a house. But we know this took place in Jerusalem, and, and chapter 2, verse 5 confirms it. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. And this is important to, to, to specify because the rest of the book of Acts moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. This whole expansion starts in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, I think, is a programmatic statement for the whole book of Acts. So this starts in Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost takes place. Question number four, how did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? And the answer is there was a dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I count six dramatic events in verses two, three, and four. I'll list them out for you. So number one, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty or, or violent rushing wind. Now this word suddenly signals that God the Holy Spirit freely and sovereignly does what he wants, when he wants. This word wind, well, usually when you see the words uh, spirit or wind or breath, uh, it's translating the, the, the Greek term pneuma or the Hebrew term ruach. This is not that word. This word doesn't mean spirit. It just means wind or breath. Now, later in the passage, we've got the term for spirit. That's pneuma. That's pneuma, but, but not, not this one. It's different. And this is interesting because you, when you have a passage that mentions wind and spirit and speaking, all in conglomeration like that, it, I think it, it's, it's connoting a pattern we've already seen in Scripture that starts in the first sentence of the Bible. So the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So you put all these factors together, this is creation language. Same thing in Ezekiel 37, the passage about the valley of dry bones. Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So when I see this here in Acts 2, you've got wind and spirit and speaking, I think it's hinting that God is present to begin a new creation. Something new is happening here. Second action is that this loud sound filled the entire house where they were sitting. It's loud. Third, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. Note the as. Divided tongue as of fire appeared to them. So after the believers heard, they heard this loud sound and they saw divided tongues as of fire. 
What does that mean? Divided tongues as of fire. I'm not sure. Uh, the image that I envision is the shape of tongues, but composed of what looks like fire. And I'm really hoping that in the new heavens and new earth, we'll have access to uh, these uh, really high-definition replay machines that show us from multiple angles what happened. Because I got questions. Um, but sometimes in the Bible, fire symbolizes that God, the holy and pure God, is present. So we see that, for example, in, in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, in Exodus 13 with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire so the Israelites can travel. So think that's involved here. This is showing God is present. Fourth action, divided tongues as a fire rested on each of them. Fifth, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit strongly influenced them and enabled them to accomplish a particular task. Specifically here, the task is in verse 11. They proclaim the mighty works of God in other languages. And then action number six, they began to speak in other tongues in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the Spirit enabled them. Now that word tongues translates a Greek word glosa. Maybe you've heard that term before. Same as the third action, divided tongues. So this word glosa, tongue, can refer to that, what you can pinch with your fingers in your mouth, your physical organ of speech. And it can also refer to spoken language. It can refer to a body of words and systems that make up distinctive language. So in this last action, they began to speak in other tongues it's, it's got to refer here to unlearned spoken languages because of verses 6 and 8 and 11. So if, if you're looking at your text, I don't have it on the screen, you, you see in verse 4, 6, 8, 11, similar words. In verses 4 and 11, you see the word tongues. We could translate that languages. And then in verses 6 and 8, we could translate that dialect. It's the Greek word dialectos, dialect. That's what that, the word language, that's dialect. So I, I emphasize this, this is a, to, to show that this is a miracle of speaking. God's enabling people to speak in other languages, in other dialects. It's not a miracle of hearing, it's a miracle of speaking. And this dramatic event is what Acts 2, later on, calls the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So next week there'll be a sermon on this but I'll just give you a, a teaser in Acts 2, 16, 17, 18 Peter's proclaiming this he's referring back to what we just read these actions this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and those days I will pour out my spirit that's what's happening here in Acts two thirty three, Peter is preaching about Christ and he says being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Christ was exalted to God's right hand, received the promise of this Holy Spirit, and then poured out the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. And before I move on to the next question, you might be wondering, how does this speaking in tongues in Acts 2 compare or contrast to speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14? Same thing, different, what's going on there? And this is not a sermon on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, but I'll briefly answer that by showing you an excerpt from a, uh, something I wrote. Tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 does not always mean exactly the same thing in Acts. This is my, my personal view. So tongues in Acts 2 
probably refers to xenoglossia, or speaking in a human language the speaker doesn't know. And tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 probably refers to glossolalia, that is, speaking in verbal patterns that humans can't identify with any human language. And here's why. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. Further, as Don Carson observes, here are four contrasts. Number one, tongues and acts occurs only in groups. Number two, they are not said to recur. Number three, they are public. And number four, they may serve various purposes of attestation, attesting the mighty works of God. And tongues in 1 Corinthians, in contrast, fall to the individual. They may be used in private. They must be translated if in public and they serve no purpose of attestation. So that's my, my take on that. Here, let's go to question number five. With what result did the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry begin? And the answer is the believers proclaimed the mighty works of God to a crowd of Jews from other nations in their native languages. This is amazing. Now let's just read through this again, verses 5 to 13. I'll pause along the way. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. Let's pause there. They, th- there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. So this includes people who had moved to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire to live permanently, as well as many who would come temporarily for Passover and Pentecost. Uh, some scholars estimate that about one million Jews would come as pilgrims to, to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost each year. Uh, then verse 6 at, the, at this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, in his own dialect. So the first language for these folks was not Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. They had their own dialects. And, and they were amazed, verse 7, and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, in our, in our own language in which we were born? So those two questions are rhetorical. This event is amazing and astonishing because the Galileans didn't speak these dialects. This was a miracle. So here's a really helpful definition of a miracle by following Richard Pertle. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. That's exactly what's happening here. Now, here's, here's a map from the ESV study Bible that corresponds to verses 9, 10, and 11. Uh, so these are nations around Pentecost, around AD 30. So I'm just going to read verses 9 to 11 and, and show you where these are on the map. So here are the, the different dialects that are hearing their language. The di- there are different people who speak these dialects. So Parthians. Here's Parthia on the far west there. That's number one. Second is Medes. There's Media. Third is Elamites. There's Elam. Fourth is residents of Mesopotamia. Fifth is Judea, which I think is probably greater Judea, which includes Syria. And then after that is Cappadocia, number six. And seventh is Asia. I think seventh is Pontus. Eight is Asia. And then uh, nine is Phrygia. And then is Pamphylia. And 11 is Egypt. Uh, And then 12 is Libya and parts of Cyrene. So it's the western part of Libya. And then 13, you got visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, so that's non-Jews who converted to Judaism. 14 is Cretans, and then 15 is Arabians. Now, all of these folks 
are coming to Jerusalem. That's, that's the hub. They're all, they're all coming to Jerusalem, and they're all hearing their, their dialects in their own tongues. So I just, I just specified these 15 groups, and now I'll continue reading here. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God in our own languages. So when Christ pours out his, his spirit on the people, they're intoxicated with God's greatness. And that overflows and they're praising God. Verse 12, they, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. That is the result of the outpouring of the spirit. Now verse 6 says this is bewildering. Verse 7 says it's amazing. Verse 12, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's bewildering. It's amazing. Verse 7, it's astonishing. Verse 12, it's perplexing. Why is this bewildering and amazing and astonishing and perplexing? It's because the apostles and other believers are proclaiming the mighty works of God to a crowd of Jews from other nations in their native dialects. This is miraculous. So just imagine these Jews who are from all these other places in the Roman Empire, they hear this loud sound, they rush to hear what's, what's going on, see what's going on, and they hear Galileans speaking in their own dialects. This is a miracle. It's stunning. And they were just shocked because each one was hearing that, hearing them speak in his own language, in his own native language. That's why they were so perplexed. And, and they asked this question, what does this mean? Peter answers that in the, in the sermon that follows, and next week we'll have a sermon on Peter's sermon. So you have to come back to unpack that question, exactly what does this mean? But, but for now, I think that's, that's sufficient to answer the question, what is the result of the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry? Now, these first five questions we've pretty much answered by looking at Acts 2, 1 to 13, and a little bit right before, and a little bit right after. Now what we're going to do is zoom out for these next three questions and, and try to bring the whole Bible to bear on, on these ones. So question six is why is this story so important? Why is this story so important? Well, this story recounts a key transition point from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's one of the turning points in the Bible's storyline. The story of the Bible has been building up to this point, which is part of a series of events that transitions from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. I like to think of this passage as telling us how we got from there to here. It's one of those kind of passages. So this, this figure is by Jason DeRoshi, and it's just showing there, there's this old age and a new age, and there's an overlap of the ages. That's where we are now. That begins with Christ's coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his pouring out of the Spirit. That begins this church age. And we, the, the kingdom of God is already here in some sense, but not yet fully here. So we're, we're in this church age. This is why this is so important as a turning point is this Pentecost event is part of the series of events at the beginning of this, this church age. So what I'd like to give you next is four reasons, briefly, that the events in, in Acts 2, 1 to 13 are such a remarkable turning point. Here's the first reason. This event reverses what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. So remember that story? At the Tower of Babel, you've got rebellious people who say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And then the Lord says, come, 
Let us go down. I think it's mocking them. I have to go down to see your tower. Let us go down and there confuse their language. Confuse their language. For what purpose? So that they may not understand one another's speech. Now just contrast that with Acts 2 verse 6. They were bewildered. They're confused because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So there's confusion in both cases, but the nature of the confusion is strikingly different. At the Tower of Babel, why are they confused? Because they can't understand each other's language. At Pentecost, why are they confused? They're confused because they can. At the event of the Tower of Babel divided people into different nations and languages. At Pentecost, it's uniting people from all these different nations and languages. In the context of Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, right before it is Genesis 10, which lists the table of nations, that is foreshadowing this list of 15 groups of people in Acts 2, 9 through 11. And then in Genesis 12, also the literary context of Tower of Babel, God makes a promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, 3, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. And Acts 2 is fulfilling that promise as it's going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth which includes Gentiles. And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. It's beautiful. Uh, Old Testament scholar Jason DeRoshi recently reminded me that the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, not Zechariah, Zephaniah, Zephaniah foresaw this. He made a connection here, and I completely missed this. Uh, Let me read it to you. It's Zephaniah 3, 8 to 10. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, Egypt, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And in in Jason Jerushi's forthcoming commentary on, on Zephaniah, he highlights six connections between the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and Zephaniah's prophecy there in chapter 3 and in Pentecost in Acts 2. I won't unpack all six right now, but it's just the connections are beautiful and it's a pattern that God designed. And where does this pattern culminate? It culminates in Revelation 7 when John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Love it. Here's a second reason. This event marks the birthday of the church. Theologians often debate when exactly did the church begin? Did it begin with Adam and Eve? Or did it begin with Abraham? Or with the Israelites? or on Pentecost, my personal view, even though I have many friends who differ on this one, is that it begins, the church begins officially on the day of Pentecost. So that, that's what I think, but I also believe that the church doesn't now exclude the people of God who existed prior to Pentecost. Rather, I put it this way, the church now includes the one people of God. That's my attempt to make all the texts fit together. So I'm thinking there are texts that talk about discontinuity, that we're under the new covenant. There's something new here. Yes, yes. And there are other texts that emphasize continuity. 
like, like Romans 11 and Ephesians 2 and 3 and Hebrews 12. So I have to say it this way. At this point in the history of salvation, the church refers to the one people of God, all God's people, which is why Paul could write in Ephesians 5 that Christ died for the church and gave himself up for her. That's why John can refer to God's people that he died for as Christ's bride, the bride of Christ. So that's my, why I think that the Pentecost marks the birthday of the church, and now the church includes the one people of God. Sec, uh, third, this event marks when the nature of the people of God changes from being a mix of rebels and remnant to being all regenerate. So more on this in, in the next part of Acts 2. So come back next week for more on this. But I'll just share this now. Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 36 promises this. I will give you, God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's, that's something special. That's part of the new covenant. And fourth, this event marks when the mission of the people of God fundamentally changes from being come and see to go and tell. So the mission uh, changes in that the people of God are no longer Jerusalem-centered. Uh, that is, come to Jerusalem and see. Now the people of God are all about spreading the good news about Jesus the Messiah to the nations by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, remember, on the day of Pentecost, that's when God harvested about 3,000 souls. And that began this wonderful harvest that's going on until this very day of harvesting souls all over the world. It's not Jerusalem-centered anymore. So that is question six. Question seven is, does Pentecostalism rightly interpret this event on Pentecost? My short answer is no, uh, but I should say that I have friends who are Pentecostals and I consider them brothers and sisters, so this isn't that kind of disagreement. This is a, a finer point, but I think still significant. So let me just back up and def define what Pentecostalism is. The reason I'm doing this is that some people hear the story of Pentecost and they think of Pentecostalism. And, and it's important to distinguish how we understand the day of Pentecost from the, the teaching of Pentecostalism. So what's Pentecostalism? Uh, it, According to most church historians, Pentecostalism began on December 31st, 1900. A fellow named Charles Fox Parham, uh, a, a teacher at Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, laid his hands on Miss Agnes Osmond that day, and she soon began speaking in tongues. And within days, uh, Parham and many other students also experienced what they believed was the initial evidence of spirit baptism. So here's, here's the gist of what mainstream Pentecostalism teaches. Believers should experience spirit baptism sometime after conversion. So you're already a Christian, and then later on, you experience spirit baptism, and then the initial evidence of experiencing spirit baptism is that you speak in tongues. And there's some debate among Pentecostals over whether you should call the speaking in tongues the second blessing or the third blessing. So if, if there are three blessings, it go like this. You've got the crisis of conversion for salvation, and then second, the crisis of sanctification for holiness, and then third, the crisis of spirit baptism for power and service. Maybe a, a, a chart would help you make more sense of this. So this is displaying the Pentecostal view of progressive sanctification. That, that is, how, how do Christians mature as Christ's followers? So the, the cross is representing the point in time when a person becomes a Christian, regeneration and conversion. That's, that happens at the cross. But there's this time gap between the cross and a crisis. 
a crisis for the Christian life to really take off. And, and the Pentecostal view says that that is spirit baptism. That happens at the crisis. And the initial evidence of that is speaking in tongues. And these, these dotted arrows that happen after that crisis are trying to depict that you can repeatedly lose and recover the resultant state from that crisis experience. But the, the, the key here is this period of time between conversion and this second something that, that they call spirit baptism. Now contrast that with what theologians call the reformed view of progressive sanctification. I, I think that this is in line with what the Bible teaches. Uh, so what fundamentally distinguishes the Reformed view from other views, and there are lots of others, like the Wesleyan view, the Keswick or Higher Life view, there's one after Lewis Berry Chafer called the Chaferian view. What distinguishes the Reformed view from all these other views really is whether there's a chronological separation between the moment of conversion and when progressive sanctification starts. According to the Reformed view, what I think the Bible teaches is that when God saves you, that's when you're spirit baptized, that's when progressive sanctification begins, and, and God preserves you, enables you to persevere to the end. Like that, that, that's what happens. And there's not a second crisis necessary to begin the, the Christian life and, and, and serious, uh, uh, serious living for God. I, I believe that all Christians are spirit baptized, uh, largely based off of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So it's a passage that refers to all of us being baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. So I would define spirit baptism as Christ judicially placing Christians in the Holy Spirit when God regenerates them and thus placing them into the body of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you've already been spirit baptized. You're already baptized by the Spirit. That's why I think the New Testament never commands Christians to pursue spirit baptism or to receive it. It's because they've already ex experienced it at the moment of their conversion. So I think the Pentecost story in Acts 2, 1 to 13 is highlighting a beautiful turning point in the Bible's storyline that it is describing what happened, not prescribing what should happen. It's saying, here's what happened. It's not a precise pattern that all of us must experience in this exact manner. And this is important. When we talk about doctrine this way, this is, this is important to talk about because as J.I. Packer said, bad theology dishonors God and hurts people. Do you believe that? Bad theology dishonors God and hurts people. Sound doctrine is so important. And, and that principle applies to views on the Christian life that chronologically separate the time that a person becomes a Christian from the time that progressive sanctification begins. So approaches that separate that are well-meaning quick fix approaches to the Christian life that are not helpful. Their quick fix to your struggle with sin will not result in a higher life or a deeper life or a victorious life or a more abundant life or anything other than a misguided and frustrated and disillusioned life. If you want to know what I really think. Uh, all right, question eight. Uh, how should we respond to this story? So often when we read the Bible and we try to apply it, we, we think, what list can I make of things to do? And that's not bad. But, but sometimes the main way to respond to a passage is not to think, what must I do? But to just look. Look at your God and marvel and worship. I think this is one of those passages. 
So I'd say look at what God has done. Praise God for sending His Holy Spirit and empowering His people to spread the gospel to the end of the earth, even to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I mean, seriously, who would live here? Uh, (laughs) uh, Locate yourself in this grand story. We are not the first believers in Jerusalem who are working outwards to Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. So many Christians read Acts 1-8 and they always think, oh, I'm Jerusalem and I'll just move out to... No, we are the end of the earth. We're here. They made it. Praise God for that. And then as you locate yourself in the Bible storyline, remember that the story is still unfolding. It's still ongoing. And Christ has commissioned his church to make disciples of all the nations at home and abroad. And who is empowering us to accomplish that mission? The Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus promised his disciples before he died, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's why you need to stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem, until you're clothed with power from on high. That's why Acts 1.8 says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you can be witnesses. So that happened, and it's, it's still the case for all of, God's, all of God's followers. So right now, let's continue to fulfill this mission to make disciples of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that starts with how you proclaim and live out the gospel in your home and in your family, your wider family, your neighborhood, your community, your social media, every sphere of influence you have. That's how this works. And if God is not calling you to do this internationally, to spread this message internationally, then he is calling you to support those who are. As 3 John 8 says, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry is an empowering presence that enables us to love God and our neighbor to put sin to death, to serve others with gladness, to persevere in faith and good works, to proclaim and live out the gospel in every sphere of life. So praise God for the Holy Spirit's empowering presence. Well, that's, that's the story of the beginning of the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry. That's it. And I just hope your, your main response is not, I want to have that exact experience that those 120 believers had in, on the day of Pentecost. Rather, we should be thinking, wow, God is amazing. Look what he did. Look what he's still doing. And we get to be part of that. This is amazing. Uh, we, we are the end of the earth, and we get to continue to fulfill this glorious mission by making disciples of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us at the end of the earth. We're so grateful. Thank you for clothing your new covenant people with power from on high, with the power of the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. We're so grateful for the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. So thank you, Jesus, for pouring out the Spirit on your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church. 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.